Hello and welcome to the Random Works podcast. Today I have Siranush Babakonova from Stanford University. Siranush is an artist, scientist and an engineer creating physical and digital immersive paradigms that allows us to transcend limitations of perception and comprehension. She is interested in innovative fashion design and implementation of novel materials and interfaces, creating new storytelling techniques and mediums, and making tools and experiences that help reimagine the future of human experience. She studied physics and computer science at MIT, researched terraformations at NASA, and ways to read and non-invasively interact with microstructures in a brain at the Synthetic Neurobiology Lab at the MIT Media Lab. In the fall of 2020, Serrano started a PhD program in Stanford Biophysics as a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellow, as well as a Knight Hennessy Scholar. Welcome, Serrano. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> uh, it's really a pleasure to speak with you and uh, have a chance to tap into um, cool um, cool people that uh, you make all this work for. It's really great to have you here. And for someone who has had such an eclectic set of interests and a really phenomenal career path in science. So how did this all start for you? So were you always interested in pouring into the sciences of a child? Were there any familial or, or inspirations around either in your family or in your wider circle and all? How did this all start for you? Yeah, I think um, science and art um, were kind of the means of life, one may say, or even the means to cope with some of the harshness of life. <laughs> um, I remember um, this episode from my early um, years when I probably was like two or three years old, um, when in Armenia, there was a time after post-Soviet um, you know, destruction of everything, the economy was crushed. We didn't have, um, it, it was devolvation. Uh, we didn't have electricity on the roads. We didn't have heat in our houses. So even in an apartment house, you had to like make up um, a piece of um, heat, heating device, almost uh, like make, make it with your hands. And um, because people already deforested all the national, um, you know, nice parks in the city, um, unfortunately, for the heat purposes, um, the only thing that we had to could burn were books um, and um, like old shoes and whatever. So it's really uh, it was really hard times, and I remember that <laughs> my mom was really had an interesting approach to all of this. For example, if we had too cold of a day, she would be like, "Oh well." Um, it's, it's good because now uh, if we open the windows, it's like the same inside as outside. So we can like look at the stars or when there would be no electricity, she would be like, oh my gosh, this is like even better. Now we don't have pollution. And uh, she would invite fellow astronomer professor to our house and all of the people from the apartment um, like all the neighbors would come and learn from him and he would like explain us the mythologies of Cassiopeia and Andromeda and um, understanding of like different cult ancient cultures that spend a lot of time between the wars and all to study stars. And, um, yeah, it was just fascinating how, you know, in the, in the midst of 
crisis, you know, fascination with nature and fascination with um, culture can uh, help you go through that in a very like bonding and strong way. So that's, I guess, where it comes from. Like my mom and her circle, like all these old people that I had to hang out with and that were role models for me and uh, very multifaceted communities, um, multicultural communities and um, all the amazing books, I guess she and um, some of the other family members gave me, uh, introduced me to in early years where I found other role models that were dead. <laughs> but nonetheless, we can read something about them and it's great. <laughs> Absolutely. Yours is a thought of terrific great as well as serendipity, it seems. And as someone, as you described, uh, growing up in pretty brutal times post the fall of the Soviet and all, how science was a gateway to the world at large and something that was enabled by folks around you and in your circles and all. So as someone foring into the Olympiads and all, so was it just a natural conclusion of your uh, fascination with the sciences and all, or how did that come about? Was it just a random chance that you took your uh, choose to take part in the Olympiads and all at someone's insistence? And how was your overall experience and back in the Armenian Olympiad program? Yeah, um, well, I am blessed with the opportunity to participate to many, even too many Olympiads. Uh, I had um, six international Olympiads in sciences. Uh, four of them are ast astronomy and astrophysics, and two of them are biology, and then many more national ones, including, you know, physics, sometimes math, and um, I also have like weird uh, sort of competitions that you may not have heard of, like sort of Olympiad of Georgian calligraphy, which also is held internationally or other <laughs> interesting competition like that. So yeah, I, um, or, or, or those in dance, you wouldn't call those Olympiads, but more like competitions like slash festivals. So yeah, those definitely were a big part of my um, upbringing. How did we get inspired to pursue them? Um, I say we because I guess my mom had an important, um, you know, role in supporting me. Um, when I was two years old, uh, my dad went to work to U.S. because again we had zero money, zero economy working in Armenia. And then my three sisters that were much older than me also went. So it was just me and my mom. And we were representatives of slightly different nationalities. So we had Georgian and Russian roots as well. And she's not Armenian at all. And we were living in Armenia, which is like 99.99% Armenians. So we definitely kind of had to stick together. And we also spoke language that not many, too many people were speaking or wanted to speak. So that's why I kind of, um, uh, we were together. Sorry for long explanation here, but, um, Olympiads, I guess, um, Soviet Union was one of the pioneers, if I am not wrong, for, you know, encouraging such competitions. And my dad was um, candidate in masters in sports for chess. I don't know how that is called in English, but uh, back in Soviet Union, that, that was his like, um, you know, chess championship 
you know, um, level. <laughs> and then my mom had been studying in a school for um, mathematically gifted kids. And she knew a lot about Olympiads. And then afterwards when she, um, uh, she quit her PhD, but continued to teach as her main job. So she taught a lot of, um, a lot of different kids, but a lot of her career was teaching again, um, kind of extra talented kids that showed prominent results in mathematics and physics uh, in those specialized schools that allow that. So I definitely knew from early, early age that um, this, uh, you know, there, there's a hardcore way of potentially studying physics and math uh, and like natural sciences and there is like the lame way. So I'm gonna like shoot for the hardcore <laughs> because why not? Like I can multiply numbers in my head, you know, like what do you do in fourth grade? I was good at that. Uh, later it got harder, <laughs> physics and math are not extremely easy and I got a little bit scared from them. But uh, yeah, definitely the motivation was that I can do that, of course I can do that. And um, there were like sad um, kind of uh, instances when some of my teachers would, you know, like publicly say that I shouldn't do Olympiads, that like there's some other people that would be better than me. And that was quite um, motivating because I was like, I'm gonna show you. <laughs> and then I would like be better <laughs> by fortune <laughs> than these other people. Um, and there were also um, really, um, really cool, um, moments when you know people would prepare to olympiads like classically like they do for example to astronomy there's a whole team that prepares mainly making the focus on calculations at all and all um versus i was really um you know fascinated with the actual you know stars and the maps and all so in the practical round of finding the stars in the astronomy olympiad i would do uh, better because i would um yeah, I would just like devote a lot of my time for like just personal training on something else or to go and talk to other teachers and whatnot. And then um, that also kind of fuels in into my like career switch that I did in like 10th grade <laughs> to do biology. So like at some point I was like, okay, I don't want to do astronomy anymore. Um, I didn't, um, I, I wanted to have a team with who we can like can very well. And I guess at that point, astronomy peeps were too busy. And I was like, okay, I'm just gonna switch fields. What 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 do I like? I like biology. Okay, in like three months, I have to like win and be number one nationals in biology. Can I do that? And I took a break uh, from school basically and um, had like all the possible books. I like made a very specific system of how I'm gonna reach that and um, I watched Dr. House movies to also learn some like medical biology sort of on the side as in learning some other things. It was fun time, but um, yeah, like kind of like leaps of crushes like that, kind of trying to like in a short amount of time, learn as much as I can to um, to understand some field. Um, that was uh, that was what Olympiads taught me. And then um, once you already get the taste of it once and if you don't take it, as a like competition as the first, but rather as a place where you can, you know, be free from your uh, constrained academic curricula in school. <laughs> and you can be free to ask like hard questions and interesting, like, you know, independent thoughts sort of questions. And you can be 
um, exposed to some of the, you know, best teachers that, you know, work with those kids uh, from around the world. And uh, if you get to international stage and also if you, um, if you are open to, you know, communicating with the kids who like later on are, are gonna probably become one of the main people that, you know, career-wise you would communicate with. And uh, they also are like super passionate, super um, interesting in so many other ways. And you can develop, you know, good friendships with such great kids. Um, and it's almost like Olympiad at that point is like festival and celebration of, uh, you know, science, knowledge, but also just like people who make it real and um, not as much competition anymore. So definitely, definitely super important. Um, but again, some I, I want to warn some of the audience that would think that Olympiad is like all fluffy and pink. It's not. Uh, <laughs> and some people take it like way too like close to their heart. And sometimes that is painful when you don't get the spot or something and you should not be discouraged. Like I had so many of those <laughs> and people write only the good ones. They don't write the bad ones, of course. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it's all in the approach. Absolutely. You give a really succinct sum summary of how the Olympiad programs uh, sort of help shape students' perceptions as a whole. And you talked about sort of um, the legacy of the Soviet system in the Olympiads and math circles, which originated from those well Soviet unions and all, and which have proliferated pretty much everywhere these days and all. And uh, the very first Olympiads and all happened in those well Soviet Union in Romania and all. And that's where the math circles also came out from. And you give a really, really detailed and a great perception of how it has impacted you as a whole and shaped you as a person from dabbling in astronomy to suddenly switching tracks pretty successfully to biology and all. And having a whole gamut of experience of the sciences, the Olympiads have had quite a lot of impact on you. Yeah, um, one thing that, the other thing that comes to mind is that um, at some point in my life, I had to do like this dramatic switch and my mom left um, the country to US and I had to go and live with my dad at that time in St. Petersburg, which is um, Northern, Northwestern part of Russia. Um, uh, very cold. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I was fortunate enough to Again, so with Olympiads, you, you may find in your country that you know there are special schools where there's a little bit more access, like the math school back in uh, Armenia, and then there's a similar one in Saint Petersburg, which was like number one ranking school, making kids to go to international math Olympiads, and I I got a chance to be there, and it was just so amazing how um, you know how 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 I, I saw like a whole different approach of this like hardcore Russian, you know, preparation and not just math, but like literally history and like any random subject, they took those very seriously. And I learned so much during the time there. And um, unfortunately they didn't take biology as seriously <laughs> or it didn't seem like, uh, but, uh, but I found other people in the city that took biology extremely seriously. And I tried to like unite them and study together. And it actually showed me how like in different countries approaches to study things may be actually different because like in larger country, like Russia, maybe India, China, I don't know. 
there's more competition because a kid can potentially go to international only once and it's just like you know nobody tells anyone else what books to read and stuff like that which is so sad and um i didn't care about that so i tried to like you know make a community and like learn together how we did it back in armenia uh, again back in armenia we're forced to do that because we have like zero labs zero like preparation that is really viable and we had to like with our own hands like try to go find books or places um, where we can learn specific PCR or I don't know any other experiment how to decide like, to frog again there's like no like centralized way how you learn that uh, whereas I know like in China there's like special like camps that you can go and you know pass and learn so um, yeah in Russia it was um, it was amazing because uh, we, we would go to like all these like little camps and all together, but everyone would be separated. And then at some point we became to be more united. So um, a nickname that people thought to give me um, uh, would be Pishinka, um, which in translation from Russian means like basically a piece of sand or dust that goes. Um, and, and then the reason for that is because when it goes into the shell of a mollusk, then uh, um, pearl is created around it. Uh, so it's basically like a place where aggregation sort of happens and people come together to make something beautiful like a pearl. Um, and yeah, community, communities, probably the most important. That's so very true. And that is a lesson that one can also draw to life as a whole and especially evidenced by last year and a half. Uh, as we have seen the world traveling with the pandemic and the importance of having a community of people around you both in terms of your family friends and elsewhere and all it really helps sustains you through and you talked about russia which is like the spiritual home of the olympiads and all and you started off by speaking of the maths olympiad and the uh, intensive preparations that happened in russia and all and once reminded the next year's international congress of mathematicians goes back to moscow in 2022 and that's where the fields medals are going to be awarded so the oh, intellectual nice home of mathematics is where it's gonna go back to and uh, I, one also remembers um, you talked about the Olympiads and in India especially I can state as someone who took part in the Olympiads who works part of the National Olympiad training program uh, there is still uh, the Russian publisher books do hold a lot of sway and it's predominantly Mir publishers books on physics and maths Olympiads there are certain texts like Arnold and Erodov and all which still hold the rules for the last four to five decades and they are quite very popular amongst us and so the influence this all the soviet union didn't last but their influence still has in terms of the uh, natural and physical sciences and all so you talked about uh, going to saint petersburg in russia living with your dad for some time so was it before you started off your undergraduate studies at mit and how, what was the decision to foray to head to mit and were you already pre-inclined to choose your major or you are considering your diverse interest you chose it at the very end yeah um i think um the decision um to try myself to go like you know we claimed uh, russia a lot but also it's understandable that in 21st century especially if 
anything you do has anything to do with biology, probably U.S. is um, number one place to <laughs> uh, try to be and know people who do stuff. Um, so definitely, definitely, I wanted to just try my chances and um, see if I can make it or not. However, while I was in my last grade in Russia, I couldn't apply because of um, um, a very kind of sad period in my life when there wasn't too much money and there was a lot of like other troubles happening that I couldn't concentrate much on other stuff. And um, uh, also some of the, um, some of the approaches that you know different parents can have on their kids participating in Olympiads can be different. For example, my mom really encouraged me, whereas at the time my dad would really discourage me and wouldn't want me to go to all those camps and all. He is he was a very serious scientist before, and he saw Olympiads as something silly or something of pride, something of you know. It's like a game almost. It's not real science, as he called it, and um, and I understand him. And um, but I still wanted to go to the last Olympia, so I actually ended up running away <laughs> from Russia <laughs> at the time and going to Armenia <laughs> uh, and living all by myself uh, for some time um, to go to my last international <laughs> Olympia in 2015 in Denmark, IBO. And uh, after that, again, until then, I didn't kind of like apply anywhere. I could potentially go and study in Moscow, but I decided I'm just going to stay in one of the universities in Armenia that, again, takes students that um, have medals for free. And I decided to go to medical school, in fact. Uh, so I have like one and one something semester of medical school under my belt. It was amazing because uh, I have a great fascination with human body. But uh, also it was a good learning experience because then I understood that I'm not extremely interested and um, I mean, it's good to treat uh, disease. And it's a lot of motivation for a lot of the research today, but I'm more interested in exploring what's the boundary of biology, like how far you can push uh, the human body um, despite what evolution gave us can you make it such that it can survive harsh environments like in space like survive radiation or not age over time and um that was kind of i was trying to find like what would help me to do that sort of research i found something called space medicine but that wasn't really it and anyways, I decided halfway through my <laughs> medical uh, semester, first semester to try myself. Uh, and that was interesting time. I was like working on a few jobs to even have money to apply to all of those um, TOEFLs and SATs and other interesting things that we have to <laughs> deal with uh, to get into school, which is, which is good. I didn't know English that well at the time. And um, also applications cost some, so I only could apply to a couple of schools, so three or four schools I applied to. And um, I kind of, because it was such a push on my side, I was like all or nothing. So I only applied to schools that were really my dream schools, which is not advisable, don't do that. <laughs> um, because later I realized that, you know, just the fact that you hear some school's name doesn't mean that it's particularly better 
than something else. And while being here in the US, I got to know so many other um, places that almost I wish I had a chance to like study there at least uh, a year or sometime or some part of my undergrad. So um, that, that, that many people, again, may not have heard of from the international students community. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was quite a push. And then there was another period when I figured out that some of my recommenders forgot to submit their recommendations. Like my science recommender forgot, like he couldn't push the button correctly or something of that sort. So my, um, let's say MIT application didn't have a science recommendation on it. And the other, there was Berkeley as well, they did. <laughs> so I was so sad for a month, literally living under a table and thinking that way. Um, basically everything is over because I also didn't really study for the medical. So like it's discontinued sort of. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, MIT was so kind to me and they gave amazing scholarship and they saved me. <laughs> and then um, I even had to, um, apply to, not apply, but get community help from just people that knew me and even those that didn't know me uh, on a platform called GoFundMe to fund my ticket <laughs> and uh, a small amount of money that you I had to pay extra for the school. And I basically put up my story and asked um, if anyone can support anyhow. And um, I, until now, I, I'm never gonna forget a guy that literally um, probably lives down the street, uh, who also has four kids um, and a company in Armenia. He just put like enormous amount of money at some point that covered that plus more. And then some other people made some other donations and everything is, of course, I can't repay. I, it's not possible to re repay this. And I'm very grateful for many people that support me throughout but also those people that just like randomly gave money to the random girl uh, but yeah it was um it was very kind of generous push from you know my recommenders um myself um my my my, my i'm sorry please cut this out it's not myself uh, my recommenders um people just from the community that i have known as teachers for a very long time my family, but also um, just random people in the community that wanted to see their peer thrive. That was MIT, sorry. And oh yeah, you asked uh, my major choice. Uh, MIT doesn't push you to choose the major like immediately. So you have about a year normally to choose it. Again, there is no strictness about that um, either, but I pretty much knew that I am, um, completely fascinated with way of understanding nature in this one discipline that does it like the best I think which is physics and I have this amazing feeling inside me every time I finally understand and wrap my head around about how something works and it's just so cool that you can write an equation on a piece of paper and in the physical world it really is that and you can see it through experiments uh, so I definitely knew that physics is the link and the, the source of it all basically so I need to know that very well it's almost like a tool it's a way of thinking it's philosophy um, so yeah of course physics and then um, my friends encouraged me to try 
to do, take more computer classes, computer science classes, and I was kind of steering away from them, even though my parents um, were um, con basically computer scientists, cyberneticians, as it was called in Soviet Union at the time. But um, so yeah, applied mathematics and cybernetics. But I guess we had so many different generations of different kinds of computers at our houses, and they had just like so many weird wires and they're just so ginormous that since very young age, I was like a little bit scared of trying to understand how all of that makes the display work um, and how the computation under that happens. So yeah, it wasn't until my, I probably even now don't understand how computers work, but <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm slowly getting there. <laughs> so that was my choice of majors. That's a truly fantastic story, replete with uh, numerous fantastic anecdotes and insights and all. You talked about uh, sort of uh, being fascinated by physics as a whole and the enormous uh, amounts of effort that you put in place to get your applications and all and accompanied with some really threatening moments and all that was truly inspirational and along the way you have also had a stint in very different research labs and all right from researching at nasa to the synthetic neurobiology lab so what went into these sort of research from researching terraformation at nasa to sort of exploring the intricacies of the brain at the synthetic neurobiology lab at mit media lab so what was the whole underlying principle behind these things and how did it influence the work that you're currently doing yeah um so the research was something that I tried to engage yet in high school because that was the only way to kind of, you know, volunteer somewhere or something of that sort to understand how some of the equipment works that otherwise high schooler doesn't have access to and therefore would perform very poorly in international biology. Um, and um, being uh, like spending a lot of my childhood years in Burakan Observatory and like nearby, um, just because, you know, like my mom is just such a selfless person. She would, at the times when we wouldn't literally have money for anything, she would talk with people that are near 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 that observatory and say that she would like work with them, like literally, like wash dishes. <laughs> And that would pay for us to, you know, hang out in the area. And then we also would like hang out with some of the like resident scientists. And also, um, again, my mother, <laughs> I wouldn't be anywhere without her. Um, so, um, so yeah, since young age, I was a little bit acquainted with the fact that a lot of people, you know, give their lives to do research. And some really cool people that were even part of National Academy and Armenia, I had like a lot of interactions with because my mom worked uh, with them as a, uh, as a secretary um, and I would hang out with their kids. I literally would hang out with them every day and see like other prominent scientists from other countries coming to their house. And like how this like all happens, how they think, how they, some, some of the old ones, like how do they remember how some of the investigation, like, 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 like uh, some of the discoveries happened and it, it just, such a nice life I guess like I don't know being a scientist is almost like um you know 
discovery after discovery, cool people after cool people, like what can be better than that? So I definitely knew that I want a life of a researcher and it's just so fascinating um, and amazing that at MIT it's encouraged very early on, <laughs> like literally day one, <laughs> uh, before even classes start, there's this thing called freshman pre-orientation program where you can spend about a week in a department of your choice. And then you get to know all the research opportunities, but also like people in the department and all of that. I saw that as an opportunity to get in touch with some people that I definitely don't want to like take any class in or, you know, major in, but I'm interested in the topic, which was the brain science. Like I'm definitely interested in brain, like what can be more profound and fundamental to uh, understanding complex biology than understanding brain. But like, I definitely didn't want to, I definitely didn't want to take uh, classes or major in it because I understand that the field is um, not very precise <laughs> to my taste. <laughs> uh, and um, and yeah, I saw this presenter who um, I thought was a graduate student and he talked about all these cool ideas, how you can use light and biologically engineered neurons to turn them on and off by just focusing light on them. Uh, which is optogenetics, or how you can use, um, like reinvent the way we think about microscopy. And instead of making greater optics to, you know, push the uh, resolution, and again, there's like a diffraction limit that you can't push too much after, um, you can actually like re-engineer um, your problem by thinking about the sample and maybe you can expand the sample literally like in a way by um uh, I, I mean i guess analogy is if you have a balloon and you have some dots on your balloon and then you uh put air in the balloon and it becomes bigger so the dots are still there and there is a tropic we separate from each other but then you have a lot of space in between and you can resolve things better with even a very cheap microscope so yeah all these ideas that's called expansion microscopy where so like on the like, like, like very innovative and I thought like this is definitely kind of, like these are definitely kinds of people I want to work with so uh before even knowing which major I have or which class I'm going to take like my first class in MIT I knew that I want to join this lab and um I figured the guy was actually the PI who was very young very uh, accomplished um principal investigator and um I had great time uh, working for basically four years in that lab, like with some small stops for uh, other internships or classes. Um, the lab is one of the largest labs at MIT. So I think at some point someone said to me that it was like 60 people or something. So everyone works on like something different. And I don't even think right now I kind of realize the full potential of what I could do in the lab because there's just so many projects, so many different people everywhere from, you know, nanoelectronics to quantum nanoelectronics and material science and biological engineering and behavioral mice work and all sorts of stuff. So um, yeah, I just actually um, had been um, um, fortunate to have my kind of like largest undergrad research work uh, put on by archive. Uh, so that is super um, exciting. Um, and until today, I continue some of my, um, some of my like collaborations with that lab. And 
yeah, that, that's definitely what it taught me that, um, um, you know, the PI there doesn't care about whether you even like finish school or not. Like they don't look at your resume. Like it doesn't matter if you're even from MIT or not. They would, if, if, you, if you know what you wanna do, if you, you know, have a great potential and you can somehow prove it, then, uh, you know, they would bet on you and uh, have such a, you know, like one of my best friends from there is a guy who literally studied photography. And then he um, kind of um, went into nanotechnology and material science and revolutionized that field by his PhD work in this lab. So it's like, so cool. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, through them, I also had a chance to um, get exposed to some of the, some of the projects and what's called Media Lab. So this is a place where there are a lot of laboratories uh, that do what's called anti-disciplinary research. So a lot of collaborations and fields that you could not think connect. And uh, I was inspired to basically think up my own projects uh, or even like projects that marginally have something to do with science or more like art science. So um, I, was, uh, I was fortunate to following the inspiration do that and um, get some of the like largest funding opportunities for art at MIT and um, hosting uh, great uh, uh, hosting collaboration with like great teams from even other universities and artists and scientists and um, making um, immersive shows for hundreds and hundreds of people. And yeah, at NASA, it was, um, another great opportunity, you know, thinking of connection of biology and space, which is always going to be in my heart. And hopefully I will get to do more space related research at some point. But it was that um, it was that it's either something to do with like humans or some biological species traveling to space, or it has to do with potentially finding life on other planets. So my, um, my collaborations with the NASA Goddard Flight, my, my work in NASA Goddard Flight Center was focused on like the astrobiology part of that. And I was really genuinely curious on, you know, what are the ways to understand in a scalable fashion, whether there is something like life on a very far planet and how do we simulate that, um, uh, how do, how, Excuse me, not how to simulate that, but how do we um, how do we understand what it would be like on the planet if there wasn't life? So we ended up doing these amazing chemical simulations that would allow us, from you know, spectra of exoplanets crossing star, understand um, what 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 their atmosphere constituents are, and um, we understand now better the balance between like what the chemistry should look like if there is some catalysis, biological catalysis versus not. This also helps us to maybe um, find ways how you can like re-engineer um, some of the existing, um, you know, atmospheres and chemistries on planets within solar systems. So like Mars is a hot one, people for some reason really want to go <laughs> live there, which is great. Um, but maybe we can make it more uh, nice. <laughs> That's a really, really 
terrific overview of your research interests of sorts and how you were inspired and especially listening to you talk about your terrific time at media lab and seems that was a place that was a natural calling to you of sorts considering already wide gamut of interest even before you forayed into olympiads and your undergraduate institutions you had a diverse array of interest and what happened in that last seemed to overlap a lot with you and all so coming to your time at stanford and all so was it a conscious decision to come to the stanford bioengineering program or was it just one of the few graduate programs you applied to and the department at stanford for your interest the best and have you been able to since you started off last year and especially turbulent times how has it been for you have you decided on any projects or a lab to choose or are you still actively taking part in lab rotation yeah so um stanford i applied to stanford because my pi uh, was at stanford and mostly i was thinking to stay in um boston area so um universities there had some people that i really would want to continue research but um stanford um especially the biophysics program here is very flexible and i just had such great time during uh, my visit that i decided that even though there is an opportunity to stay at mit um i would maybe gain more if i kind of branch out into the unknown and um spend a few years studying something new with some new people and i can always um you know have collaborations with back home and it will basically make my my experience or my knowledge even richer um it's um it's also um important to say that um the night tennessee program was extremely generous with um granting me this fellowship that's uh, one extra fellowship that is only stafford specific so um through that i have an opportunity to basically have a community of some of the best scholars and many other departments as well so um international policy or uh economics or whatever other thing and create you know it it helps us create like kinship opportunities among ourselves and learning opportunities and especially you know throughout the last year or so we saw how biology in particular has such convoluted ties with um let's say biopolitics right and um it is it is important to understand how some of those other systems work or um you know what you, there was already um a decision that we are not going to be having biological weapons um uh, that actually one of another mentors Messelson and Boston had worked on uh I think it was president nixon i'm not sure um but um but 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 now it's potentially a new threat again and those are just so easy to make right uh nuclear nuclear weapons it's hard to make like you literally can take currently satellite images from um from the space and see uh who is like transporting or mining uranium or whatever whereas like biological weapons you literally have to just like look up 
some sequence of some very deadly whatever and just synthesize it in your little lab and you can do that as a high school student and there's nothing preventing you from that so interesting interesting other questions that are outside of my immediate field of expertise to think about uh, as i'm getting like a little bit more serious trying to find a career here um more opportunities at stanford and it's very diverse there's very good um you know uh, it, it, it's much more diverse, I would say, than uh, even MIT and Harvard, because it has many representatives from different countries, uh, but also kind of ideal, ideologies, so you can understand different paths or different approaches very well. And um, also, needless to say, they have like a big horse facility where one of those first movies was taken, you know, the running horse. <laughs> um, and I love horses <laughs> and um, also I recently um, had um, been I, I have been trying to like spend more time with my, um, my 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 own health and trying to like get back what I lost some time ago which is like ability to dance fine because I stopped dance in high school um, again because I moved to Russia and all of that so um being in um uh like very hardcore uh school in the opera and ballet center in, in Armenia taught me how much I like it and I was doing that basically in parallel to all the Olympias like I was killing myself in school to like make sure I finish all the homework while I was at school that I was killing myself at the um basically Olympic preparation like chunk of my day and then I was killing myself once more <laughs> until like 9 p.m doing dance <laughs> so uh I definitely want to get back more into that and um bring more discipline and all and Stanford has amazing facilities for um ballet and many different rooms to do that whereas again, MIT doesn't have that and Harvard has a little bit <laughs> uh so yeah a lot of good things about Stanford people here are amazing uh in that physics program you can basically work with whoever you want there's like uh like even I can just work on with math pe math people like nobody will tell me anything and yeah great freedom with fellowships I would encourage everyone to apply for fellowships as their undergrad because you have like extra rounds of you know application and you um uh you, you you try yourself and if you do get a fellowship it gives you like great freedom to you know not depend on which labs do need a scientist because you basically pay for yourself <laughs> um so um um which lab did i choose i am still choosing i think uh lockdown times were really hard on many um people that have experimental uh as a part of their work so uh, and many of my classes where, you know, we would naturally have to be going to like, see what NMR machine looked like, see what this is, what that is. Like we didn't have any of that. It was all kind of sad Zoom calls. <laughs> and uh, with, with labs as well, like, you know, the point of rotations is that you go and work with the people, but then the people are not there and they're not supposed to like talk to you or be near you otherwise. Uh, something really bad supposedly happens. <laughs> so uh, we have all these extra precautions. Um, um, where, where, whereas, I don't know. Um, um, 
for some of the theory people, um, it's, I guess, a little bit easy, easier. So I've been recently thinking whether I want to do a little bit more theory or not. But on that note, um, another, um, I don't know if uh, you want to talk about Zapiens or not, but with Zapiens, if we talk about what it is, um, we've been doing some other work, which is like kind of more theory. So over the time when there was like lockdown and all, it was cool to have opportunity to do that or more computational work with the Boromarks lab um, last year. So yeah, there, there, there's still like ways to do things, but we have to kind of take it a little bit slowly. It was like our decisions and all be given the current circumstances. That's so very true. And that was, again, a really fantastic and a great overview of the things that you have been up to in these seemingly dolorous times. And you talked about, uh, wanted to speak about Zapien. So what is it about? And uh, how did it all come across? So was it something you conceptualized on your own or you did it with a group of friends and all at MIT? And uh, what is it all about? Yeah, it is, it is basically, um me being coming back from NASA and being extremely worried about some of the policies or not worried, but rather, you know, questioning how do we decide on those with some of the biopolitics in space again. And um, I was, I, I, I wanted to have a community to talk about that. And um, a good friend of mine then told me that, who am I waiting for? Like, I can create a community for myself. Like, I don't need to someone else to do that for me. So I was like, oh, sounds good. Let me like frame my thoughts more concretely with some visuals and some uh, write-ups of what am I thinking about and just ask just wider MIT community if anyone else is interested in this and we can just like think together how we can learn more about this. So um, what I figured was the larger interest of mine is what's called human augmentation, again, stemming back from my like old interest of how much you can push the biology to experience the world. Can we have people that live for much longer? Can we have people that can transfer their thoughts to other people or the computers without having to type them in or um, spell them out? Um, or can we have people that um, can uh, survive harsh conditions, um, enormous pressure under the ocean or uh, a lot of radiation or um, can we have people that um, at some point can, you know, live on different scales, like really small people, uh, you know, Jules Verne, I think, has all these um, sci-fis where you go inside human's body and like travel, and, like see the little cells of the brain and all, <laughs> like, can, can that happen? Is that possible? Um, some, some of that is borderline sci-fi, of course, but then, um, some of the other questions are, in fact, uh, I discovered things that people work on their companies. There's like um, a lot of, uh, like a whole like diversity of approaches to each one of these problems from different labs, from different schools of thought. So to kind of understand all of that in a very rigorous way, like instead of just talking sci-fi, rather be like, okay, what's physically plausible? And if it's physically plausible, is it scalable? Like that approach that like works as a proof of concept, would it scale up to like actually like let's say interface the whole brain versus just you know poking it in a few spots? Um, 
that uh, that is a question that technologists and people of science at MIT are probably best suited to answer and imagineers uh, who are interested in you know such sci-fi topics as augmentation are probably best suited to ask and um, yeah I just I just named it sapiens um, uh, I, for like X like unknown sapiens uh, humans wise humans wise beings um, and uh, and a bunch of people uh, would respond to my like Facebook posts or would come to the first meeting at like posters over at MIT. And our first meeting was like us deciding what the format would even be. And uh, we had um, basically not been recognized as a student club, but already had received like more funding than any other MIT student club. And we hosted a big symposium where about 2000 people signed up to attend <laughs> and um, again a normal no normal event is like about 100 people max 150 so yeah um, we had to book like two largest rooms at MIT to host all those people and we had enough money to feed burritos to all of them because it was like basically a full day event uh, and we brought specialists from you know all of those different disciplines uh, that kind of fall under a larger umbrella of human augmentation, many of who later became our um, mentors and advisors. And uh, since then, um, since and again, we were hosting meetings with uh, graduate students, postdocs, and professors basically on a weekly or bi-weekly basis um, to learn, right, learn the field and understand what's What's uh, to, to separate the wheat from, I forget what the second world in English is, like the, the good from the bad. <laughs> um, uh, but um, but then, then lockdown hit and we were not able to, um, to continue our like in-person events, um, even though at the time we were basically one of the most funded real organizations, student organizations at MIT. But yeah, that money was taken away because you know, no student was on campus anymore. And um, we then focused to contribute to some of the um, um, like online events uh, or uh, books that some people in the field were writing and kind of contributing what students think about like the future of humanity or whatnot. And still holding journal clubs basically every week or two and um, over Zoom <laughs> and then uh, also, as I mentioned, some of us kind of came together to work on a specific research topic that um, we are um, preparing for publication right now uh, with one of our mentors, which was really fun because, um, again, very different expertises come together. And um, we, our, our, our core team right now is like all PhD students, um, mainly uh, nuclear physics and atomic physics. <laughs> Uh, and um, we had people from neuroscience and brain cognitive science, bioengineering, um, psychology, even uh, material science. Um, so yeah, very, very diverse team of people. Oh yeah, and computer science. Um, and um, those people basically became my family, probably even closer than my like lab people family um, because we would have retreats together in one of our places um, often and basically talk and hang out with each other so so much and go through so many adventures as all these like awesome professors 
working on some of the most awesome things uh, together. So yeah, I, I don't know what it would be now. Maybe we will branch out to also have a branch at Stanford. Maybe we'll just be in, because we are doing things that maybe is like outside of the scope of student club organization. Um, maybe just do something else as well. But um, so far it's been awesome <laughs> and definitely still continues being awesome. <laughs> Really, it sounded really extremely fascinating when you talk about human augmentation and how it had a lot of takers, even in its early days, as you talked about it being the largest funded student organization at MIT, as well as more than 2,000 people signing up for the inaugural symposium, which is quite a number at any point of time, a pandemic or not. And that's really fascinating. And uh, this speaks to your whole interest on exploring the whole intersection of art, science, and society. And this is something, this is a common thread one can draw from your journey, right? From your early days of fascination with the sciences when you forayed outside with your mother and her friends, as well as the way you have come. It's a whole gamut of experience are these intersections and especially so it seems that interdisciplinarity hasn't just been a buzzword for you but has epitomized what you have been actually doing over the years yeah um it's it's hard because sometimes people have time to do like parallel careers you would find rarely people that i like learning from that you know, are great scientists and then separately are great musicians or artists, but then, um, or polyglots or something of that sort. But then um, it's rare when people actually unite those in an interesting way, like even more rare. So I am definitely trying to find more people of that sort um, that can find connections and not just separate notes that they're really good at. Um, and that also helps with, I guess, competitiveness, uh, competitiveness, uh, like within arts or stance, right? I would love to still feel like I'm really good and be on the stage or do art that wows people. But I understand that, you know, by this age, if I wasn't devoting 24-7 to mastering my techniques and all, I cannot compete with absolutely not. So my solution to that is, you know, connect some technology with some art in a way that creates a new medium that nobody thought about before. So you can make a piece of experience or um, a body of knowledge that is kind of orthogonal to everyone else. Um, like small examples of that are, um, was uh, the photography and nano, <laughs> nano, nano engineering a friend of mine, in fact, um, uh, we um, received a, like a seed grant from National Geographic to put together this um, chamber that uh, would have mechanical interference of water waves inside it that disturbs the little dinoflagellates in it uh, that in the, as a result produce light when they are mechanically disturbed. And you basically can create like a 3D visual made of this new like medium that you can tell stories in a new way with, or um, people that may not have synesthesia, which is a connection of one sense to some other sense. Like let's say you eat cake and you see blue. 
uh, some people apparently have stuff like that um, um, in, in our in, in our pursuit to um, augment uh, or, or like explore what is perception augmentation, we decided to explore with Professor Wilczek from physics department, in fact, and um, a team of his uh, students of his class and um, artist and not artist uh, and the composer uh, who is a synesthete, um, Mayor Bichner, like this area of you know voice um, and color or sound and color, and um, basically um make experiences that allow us to hear some of her compositions but also see on the garments of um members of the orchestra or quintet uh what are the colors that she in her mind or in her eyes sees when she hears each one of the in instruments and um yeah it was a great collaboration with boston um uh, Museum of Science planetarium so people could sit and they almost like feel washed from 360 with the colors that she sees and also they can see like each individual uh, person that plays a piece um, uh, simultaneously with others be distinct uh, in the color that emerges on their optic fiber garment uh, with um, LEDs um, that's programmed to be picked up from the immediate voice that they make and yeah that potentially kind of is just um, like first steps of me trying to like find such links, but the, and it could over time probably hopefully become more profound and those connections would be more um, meaningful. But even that one project, I remember um, there was a family that emailed me after that, uh, that said, thanks for doing that because their child who couldn't hear attended and they basically through visual could experience the music of Mary Bichner uh, and performance of the quintet. So yeah, sometimes you think you also do some like silly art something and then that actually helps someone. So it's um, not obvious. <laughs> that in essence you have epitomized the whole of sciences as well, especially basic science research or fundamental science research, which doesn't necessarily happen because people are seeking some big bang applications but they do it for the innate curiosity and a while earlier you had talked about one of the best things about science and a scientist is the fun of exploring your own curiosity of not being beholden to sort of running some spreadsheets or running some calculations day by day in a monotonic manner but the sheer fascination of one being a scientist is the immense leave it allows you to delve into the natural world as well as explore your own curiosity. This, in essence, epitomizes a lot of fundamental science research as a whole, too. Totally. Yeah. So um, thank you. Thank you so much. You definitely put it better than I could ever. <laughs> so you have been making some great points. And for someone who has been so immensely successful in what you have been doing over the years and all. So have you ever grappled with the ubiquitous imposter syndrome and the feeling of not being good enough in certain scenarios or circumstances? And how did you confront it? Um, again, your question is that if you don't feel good, good enough in some, some scenarios? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Mm, I would say that for me personally, a lot of the a lot of the stagnation uh, or procrastination comes hand in hand with uh, a kind of perfectionism. So because you only accept the best and not anything else than the best, then if you don't have time for the best or you're not sure that you can do the best, you just don't do anything. <laughs> and you just kind of sit around and be sad and watch YouTube videos. So <laughs> definitely a problem um, that I have. Um, also, also, if it relates specifically to your biology, it's even harder. Like again, being a dancer and then not being able to dance as you were able before. It's, it's like hits even more because it's your like perception of your muscles that don't exist anymore. It's just very sad. It's almost like you lost half of yourself. Um, and um, also kind of being surrounded by so many awesome people and sometimes um, daring to compare yourself to them. Um, very, very bad idea. <laughs> I don't have the cure for that. Just little things that I learned to do over time maybe helps anyone else. And um, if there are people that are on your pod podcast experiencing similar problems, uh, they could reach out to me and um, I potentially can um, um, give them like specific apps and product productivity stuff that I'm sometimes using. Like one that really helped me was Calm app. I use it so much that I became an ambassador of it. So now I have a link that I can share with my friends. They can like email me and I can like send them the link <laughs> because they're my friends if they want to try it out. So um, yeah, just just um, just what helps out is to be extremely scientific about each problem. Like sometimes I would have even mental problems. And I remember I um, was so sad and depressed uh, for whatever like family stuff and I talked to my um, supervisor and uh, it's something that is almost taboo like in U.S. you don't talk to your professor about these things but I was so desperate that I was like whatever um, and they were very you know approaching it as a problem like what are all the possibilities what are all the like things we can tweak to try to let's like think about this experiment do you have to try every single like approach that you think is plausible and then you know if it doesn't, doesn't work it's good it's like a piece of data and then if it works it's great and then if it doesn't work it's good and then like go one by one and I was like oh great so maybe like the fact that like it's it's not even, even if you're in a very sad situation it's not like end of it all like you can write out potentially if you have um you know someone help you or just yourself all the possible ways you can come out of it, like even the bad ideas. Um, and then go through them one by one and then take one day at a time and um, do an experiment of that sort on yourself and on your psyche. Because again, we haven't solved human brain for a reason. It's very complicated. We don't know why we feel a certain way. <laughs> um, and, then, um, and then, yeah, using um, techniques to, um, write out everything that you want to do which is 
all very interesting and all, and then trying to break it down into smaller manageable chunks and actually feeling good, not solving the brain at a given day, but approaching that a little bit. Like if you can cultivate in yourself this, um, this feeling, that would be great. And then specifically with, um, um, let's say, um, anything that has to do with like discipline and physique, uh, that was also a big, um, a big area that I was working on. Um, so I understood that I dare not think of myself as good of a scientist or just, you know, um, good enough of a person if I, to, to talk about all these complicated topics and complicated math and differentials and, um, tensors and all, if I cannot figure out sleep and eat and exercise. Those are like the three things that we should definitely like all have figured out. <laughs> you know, like sleep is very important. So many studies show that it's very important. Just like do it. <laughs> Don't think that your organism is extremely special and um, <laughs> in a way that you can push it very hard and still be healthy. And then eat as well. Um, Again, I um, had some problem with um, um, food, uh, food being an addiction for me for a very long time. And um, I was bulimic for nine years. Uh, but what helped me, again, through friends and conversations, I figured that, oh, it's energy conservation. And, you know, it's just all fine. I can calculate all the foods and approximately it's correct. And then I can, like, be very quantitative about that. And I guess for my mind, it gives me like big peace and I saw the results that I can very well manage if I calculate. Um, and then you can stop calculating at some point, but at the time um, when you're really struggling, that helps. And then um, exercising as well. Um, there are just numerous studies and actually a um, very cool lab at Stanford tries to systematize those. Um, this whole approach to like exercise why why it is like still number one thing that you can do an 80 percent contributor to uh you know having a longer lifespan uh we don't have a very good understanding yet if you want to check out long lab uh at stanford um uh, but um but again th those th th those there's so many studies that you know it's just good for you and somehow you have to just discipline yourself to think of that as equally important as um, sleep and um, with food as well um, especially kind of hanging out with people in the aging community it is it is so far um, kind of the understanding that you know not eating for extended amounts of time is actually what we've been doing before and puts your organism into like a bio bio biophysical mode I guess that is um, trying to strive for repair and survival rather than kind of binging and thinking that everything is right so putting your organism through some stress by not eating all the time is fine like being a little bit hungry is completely fine and then I discovered for myself that I would actually be more productive if I um if I, if I kind of structurize all my like sleep and food and exercise more. 
um, and I know what am I doing at specific times of day for and, and and that just kind of gives you a base and when like in science everything doesn't go very well or when in art doesn't it doesn't go very well you still have this good feeling and you're not like sleep deprived from working for two weeks nonstop. Um, I don't know this was kind of convoluted but maybe you can chop it chop chop this Absolutely. Those are really some recent points you made. And these are things that uh, we all need to keep in mind. And uh, in your journey, you have talked about the incredible influence, incredibly phenomenal influence of your mother, who has been a truly inspirational figure in your journey and all. Alongside her, who have been some other mentors who have been instrumental in guiding you to where you are currently? Yeah, too, too many to mention um, so many teachers from, from back home that took me under their wing and taught me in their extra time and treated me as their child and fed me when I didn't have my mom close to me and all. Um, even, you know, some teachers that didn't know me for too long, like this one teacher in Russia um, for math, um, she um she literally would you know take care of my food <laughs> situation and stuff like that so um amazing amazing people all my teachers so i would say um and including dance teachers and swimming teachers and all of those as well i i, I somehow like the idea of being close to your teachers and mentors and like asking them questions outside of like exactly what you're supposed to do with them that kind of helps um, that richer experience. Maybe it's this Eastern thing and you and I understand maybe some of the Western, uh, more, more Western people, um, it's not the culture here, but there's this big kind of internal like metaphysical thing of like having a teacher, a sensei. Uh, <laughs> and I'm trying to like find that in every elder or every like even a young person mentor um, of mine young people that um uh especially for olympiads didn't um maybe themselves didn't bring medals but then they gave a lot of their time and careers to help the next generation as much as they could like again with their own money preparing all the experiments and all um um, um my sisters um they as well were students at the time when I was, you know, growing up and they would work extra and send money back home so we could afford anything. My dad, my sisters would do that. And you have to understand like Armenia is one of those, I don't know how other post-Soviet states, but apparently Armenia's GDP and a lot of it depends on people from outside Armenia and diaspora sending money back home so you basically have like a few people from your family that leave abroad and then they send money back home. And that's kind of sad and probably, you know, that needs to change and people in the country have to be more entrepreneurial to produce stuff uh, to make the economy grow. Um, but yeah, all those people that basically a lot of people in many other countries depend on. And, um, and sometimes, um even just um 
friends, I guess. Um, if, if, if anything, I learned a lot from people that I closely interacted with and at different parts of my life, I've been blessed to have near me some of the most knowledgeable, most wise, most kind, um, most devoted um, people. And uh, I still need to learn how to almost at this time, I need to do it like mathematically and like schedule and time to talk because otherwise days go by and you're thinking about a problem or another problem or another problem and then like in science or whatnot. And then, and then you forget that there were these people and you have to like continue the actual contact. You have to like create opportunities, create adventures together with them, especially if you know those are good people. And um, in the long term, it will pay off. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say, too many to mention, um, but those are some of the main groups. Truly, and uh, you have talked about how important community has been around you on your projects and on your time, uh, whether it was about Zapians or your time working in different clubs, you talked about the incredible number of people. So what are some other engagements that you pursue outside of science and academia? You talked about being fascinated with dance and you talked about not getting to dance as much in Russia, but did you have a chance to uh, watch the famous Bolshoi Ballet when you were in Russia? share and what else have you do too um what else do you engage in outside of academic and scientific endeavors yeah um um who unfortunately i didn't go to Bolshoi, but um but marinsky theater in st petersburg is uh, not worse and extremely great and then there's also this small museum um uh near uh, near Nevsky Prospect, where um, there is the exhibition of the, you know, the beginning of the ballet and um, the beginning of the Juan Ballet that also happened in St. Petersburg. So if anything, St. Petersburg and the Vaganova Academy there, uh, which is probably the best place to study ballets, the, the core of it and the like starting point of it. So I, I, I yeah, that was, that, that was great to have a little bit of Again, I didn't like spend time there and then because I at the time already didn't do ballet but um or dance, but um but just being near it and going to the museum was great. Um I had been fascinated with um calligraphy and 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 symbols uh and their meaning and writing systems and just languages. Uh, my mom really encouraged me to study many languages. Again, I'm, um, my, my mom and my family taught me Russian at home and um, some Georgian, and then I knew Armenian, and then of course English. And then my mom also encouraged me to do French and German. Um, before I went to the special physics mathematics school, I went to another school, which was extremely expensive for our family, but I'm so happy I attended it. That taught me those like extra languages and those like extra like strict linguistic sort of accent. So language is amazing. It allows you to transcend limitations of your culture. And I do intend to study more languages as I go forward and um, uh, studying the writing systems uh, helped me to you know, I, I understand, uh, you know, what the, what the 
nation had to go through because actually in the way that you write and the way how your uh, writing system is done, there's a lot of you know history that plays a role in that and a lot of kind of circumstances that are around people that make them to one style versus the other. And um, I, I, I try to do some projects in that sense. Uh, we have amazing facility for ancient manuscripts that date um, some of them date like thousands of years uh, in Armenia so spending a lot of time there um, as a child as a, as a middle school like high schooler and um, and my undergrad um, actually spending a lot of time creating a written system for language that doesn't have a written system so Ipaliwe um, was for a also language uh, from uh, South Africa region. Super interesting project. Um, then um, I am very interested in fashion. <laughs> I um, or wearables. I think my 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 opinion is that there's um, a lot of a lot of um, real estate on a human body where you can attach a lot of the things that we can produce right now to interface with our biology or track specific things and do early diagnosis or whatnot and um, interface with our perception better. However, we're not doing that and we're rather using just materials that are simple materials uh, just to feel warm and cool and all. So um, thinking about ways to like revolutionize fashion and thinking about like new sorts of materials that you can use and new sorts of um, um, and, and new sorts of costumes that you can make for people to communicate with each other without words, which a lot in the costume and plays a role is um, and yeah those are probably the main ones recently. I was extremely interested in um, poetry and just generally literature and translation. So there are a lot of pieces in um, Armenian, Georgian, Russian, even German, French that are not translated to English. So I would like my friends to know what they are and understand those, but alas, it takes um, an extremely talented translator to translate those in fact. And, especially with poetry, you also have to translate form. In a lot of Eastern poetry, uh, the rhyme is extremely important and not just, um, um, you, you know, a lot of the um, English poetry right now is kind of um, not having rhyme. I still don't understand and cannot digest those, but <laughs> um, yeah, uh, seeking opportunities to actually find fund translations of pieces that I, think are important or connecting to translators and authors that are alive today which is like crazy I have no idea how people come up with these like written masterpieces um, uh, that are kind of the crowning thing that you can do with languages like dual from the language this is very um, very interesting to me and oof, Stanford uh, is a great place and uh, I think um, has a lot of opportunities for that. So it's kind of like future projects more. I'm, I'm right now in like a limbo stage a little bit thinking about like stuff that I want to do. <laughs>
So what is something you'd like to do as soon as things ease back to whatever you can call normal in these seemingly abnormal times? Um, oh, um, oh, well, well uh, within like, I, I definitely want to have an access to the uh, maker space here in Stanford so I can like build stuff um, in my free time or after lab. So I, definitely um like one of the things that we're discussing with an old friend was um making a costume that is uh, basically a dj set of itself so instead of dancing under music you would have the costume that feels your movement and you can compose music with your movement so um that would require me to go to campus and work how i am not allowed to do right now so that would be like one of the things dancing um horsing oh equestrian sport um, and retreats, many, many retreats with um, Sapiens and other labs and group friends just to catch up with everyone. It's been a long time alone. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't as isolated. I, um, as I said, try to create opportunities to see friends and uh, explore nature while everything was shut down. So I was doing a little bit of that and that was um that was amazing i am really excited for um you know years to live in the united states it's one of the most blessed with natural beauty places in the world absolutely and one sincerely hopes you get back to doing it and this has been a really riveting conversation with you on your terrific journey through science and life and finally as a random works podcast tradition which three people would you like to come and divulge their own experience in a random book one of my um great mentors that i like kind of the path off and now they are they were in academia then they branch into like some industry and now they're basically making a research organization of their own, which is like a different thing that never had existed before um, at a marble stone. And he also worked a lot in the field of um, brain machine interfaces and he's a biophysicist and physicist himself, um, more on a theory side, but guiding a lot of the experiment work. So that would be definitely one person. Um, my closest friend right now, from whom I learned a lot of things um, kind of that are interfacing science. You may, um, you, you may enjoy talking to Joshua Ramet. He, um, he thinks about you know, how specific technologies also can have implementations for stuff that you know, people don't immediately think of them such. So, um, that would be like another, uh, but, 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 but again, it's, 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 a, it's a class of people that, you know, they are interested in many things, too many things to have an actual career and in each one of those. But, um, uh, but yeah, a lot, of friend, uh, a lot of my friends are like that as well. I have like two people in mind right now. One is like that specific person that I told you about that also is kind of on the intersection of art and science and now he's starting his like own company based on this way of producing nanomaterials that um, nobody thought of before it's called uh, implosion fabrication when you like 
make a structure and then you instead of expanding it like shrink it down and then you make like a very small nano complicated architecture that you know, could never do otherwise um daniel oran debbie marks let's say she's a harvard medical school um professor uh and she studies um sequence based um learning about structures of proteins and rna so you know how alphafold and um, a lot of the other models that are force field based learn on sequences of proteins and try to design new ones or fold the ones that you give them correctly well she does the same thing but only with sequence knowledge and learns from evolution to understand the spatial folding of the proteins which is extremely cool and she has a cool life story um, I definitely want to learn from her how she balanced, um, you know, family and work because a lot of her years she devoted to raise their her ch children. And as a woman and a woman that wants to have a family, I think it's really important to uh, <laughs> uh, balance those correctly and do both, you know, passionate, great science, and then also um, a lot of. Uh, not, not just for women, but for everyone, but for women, it's a little bit harder in some way. Uh, spend a lot of time with kids. Um, Daniel Estandian, uh, who is brain cognitive science graduate from MIT, he just came out with, uh, just finished his dissertation uh, on a way to sequence proteins um, and uh, starting his company soon. So maybe it would be cool. Uh, cool link at the very beginning of his like new step of his life and um another person that is a new good friend from stanford is maddie marlino maddie has also a really cool you know story of her life and um she um is actually also a medalist in olympics but bronze medalist in the junior um u.s junior olympics which is um which is like a different Olympiad. And she works a lot with Air Force um, and she knows all about human intelligence officer work. And I think that would be like a really cool kind of um, person to talk to who understands, um, you know, political science and philosophies of many places of the world and how these things interface um, and how you can use technology and humanities to assist that in the most profound way. Those are some terrific nominees. And thank you, thank you for coming and indulging us in a very fascinating random walk. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs>